Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Nevadita, the host of the New Books Network Anthropology Channel. And today we are joined by author Dr. Gareth Thomas to talk about his latest book, Down Syndrome Screening and Reproductive Politics, Care, Choice, and Disability in the Prenatal Clinic. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks very much for having me, Nevadita. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, so why don't we... Hi, this is Nevadita, the host of the New Books Network Anthropology Channel. And today we are joined by author Dr. Gareth Thomas to talk about his latest book, Down Syndrome Screening and Reproductive Politics, Care, Choice, and Disability in the Prenatal Clinic. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks very much for having me, Nevadita. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, so why don't we go ahead and start today's show by you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came about being a sociologist, especially in the field of healthcare. Yeah, of course. So um, I could probably go back to 2006, actually. That's when I began my undergraduate degree in sociology at Cardiff University based in Wales uh, in the UK. So I did that degree and I really enjoyed it, but I didn't actually have any concrete plans for after I graduated. Um, so I had a conversation with my, my supervisor, uh, Finn Bowring, and he convinced me to try and apply for a master's program, which wasn't really on my radar actually at that point. Yeah. Um, but over four years, I, I started to become really interested in ideas around disability, of stigma, of interactions in medical settings and a few other interests as well. But it culminated essentially in a, a master's thesis in which I examined how mothers of children with a prenatal or postnatal diagnosis of Down syndrome um, reacted to that and how they constructed an understanding of their own identity and their own sense of self in light of that situation. So that's really, um, that's really where it started. And after some more conversations with Finn, um, I decided to continue this by undertaking a PhD in sociology, once yeah. again at Cardiff, because I love it here, <laughs> uh, on prenatal screening for Down syndrome. So my undergraduate degree was looking at, um, sorry, my undergraduate dissertation was looking at how parents deal with public interactions when um, they're out and about with their child with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of went back to the diagnosis stage for my master's. And then I went back even further um, for my PhD degree, uh, thesis, PhD study to look at um, prenatal screening, and so that's really where it um, where it came from. So this started in October 2010 and finished in June 2014. So from there, I um, I took a researcher job here at Cardiff on a completely unrelated topic, but something still <laughs> really interesting. I thought. Um, but then in June 2015, I was appointed as a lecturer here at Cardiff in sociology. And um, I, I love it. I really enjoy this job. It gives me opportunity to um, explore some really major research interests to teach sociology and medical students, um, undergraduate level and postgraduate level. 
And, um, of course, do fun things like this, like talking about my book. So Yeah, definitely. Uh, you get the best of all worlds. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so maybe sort of along those lines, why in particular did you choose to write a book centered around disability and the prenatal clinic, and specifically why you chose to address Down syndrome screening as the focus? Of course, yeah. So I came at this really, I think, in terms of having an interest in disability and stigma uh, through my undergraduate degree, but I think it actually came a little bit earlier than that. Mm -hmm. So I think my initial interest in disability stemmed from growing up with uh, Brittany. So Brittany is a now 28-year-old a woman who has Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. So she lived about three or four doors down from me right. um, when I was when I was younger. And we grew up together and really it was just a case of we're we're in more more or less the same age. And as we were getting older I started to think about, you know, why were people treating her differently as opposed to myself. And I think really that was when I think about it, um, I'm sure Brittany was quite an inspiration for the sort of work that I do and why I'm interested in this stuff. So I felt that this, you know, this personal relationship transformed into something more substantial uh, during my degree program, uh, both at the undergraduate and master's level. And in terms of why screening, I felt that because I'd done my master's on how parents parents manage a prenatal or postnatal diagnosis of Down syndrome. I just wanted to focus my attention elsewhere and I read around the literature quite a lot and I felt that the stuff on prenatal screening, um, there wasn't loads around coming at it from a lens where I thought there was a little bit of a gap in terms of thinking through how gears of disability are talked about right. in prenatal screening and also um, how it's really routinized. People talk about Things like prenatal screening for Down syndrome being um, taken for granted and being normalized within prenatal clinic. But actually, I felt that this was a little bit of a gap in the market, as it were. There weren't many people who were going in and doing observations of what we call ethnography mm -hmm. um, in these settings, at, at least in a UK um, context. So I felt that I could actually contribute something quite new to the debate. Yeah. And one question I've I've had actually from some people is why I didn't focus on diagnosis. Yeah. Uh, why, yeah. Whereas I was quite interested or more so in uh, screening. Mm -hmm. I think there were, there were a few reasons really why I didn't do uh, anything really around diagnosis. One was that I'm sure you can appreciate it was practically quite difficult. So totally. when you do it, when you do an ethnography, you do it in a small number of settings and, because the number of possible parents who would be told about a diagnosis of Down syndrome or even genetic conditions more generally, it would have mostly been quite minimal. And although I could have done it on other genetic conditions to widen the focus, um, I wanted to focus on Down syndrome because I felt that um, there was something really interesting about this, uh, about the genetic condition itself and yeah. its complexity, how that gets talked about in um, prenatal medicine. So, um, yeah, so it was mainly a practical matter in that respect. And I also question whether me going into those quite personal stories would have been uh, suitable. And I mean, I talked about diagnosis the diagnosis stage with some parents who had a child with Down syndrome. Um, and I, I, of course, I got some data there. But actually, some of those conversations, particularly around that moment of diagnosis, you know, the parents, mothers and fathers um, revealed how 
difficult that moment was. Yeah. And how, um, yeah, they talked about a lot of the problems they had with the healthcare profession in terms of that conversation taking place. And whilst I think it's really important to explore that, yeah. I felt that being quite junior and being someone who wasn't familiar with this kind of work at the time, I thought mm-hmm. it's probably best for me not to look at that sort of stuff because actually I think the last thing parents want to do in that really difficult and ethical moment where you decide whether to continue or terminate a pregnancy or even before that whether to go on to have diagnostic testing it's so um you know it's so tough yeah um I didn't exactly you you don't want to be seen as intruding on people's um difficult situations as important as it is to kind of know about this stuff I think um yeah so, totally. that, so that was probably another practicality, but just from an academic point of view, I mean, I've touched on this a little bit, but I felt that actually a lot of the interests uh, in this area had been on kind of newer, exciting, sexier technologies, mm-hmm. and there wasn't really much stuff on this, the techniques that were taken for granted and that were really embedded within prenatal medicine. Right. Uh, that, you know, these technologies that are seen as so routine and in some ways so unproblematic by certain populations. So for me, instead of going to the new frontier of all the new exciting stuff, I thought, well, it would be interesting to go back and look at what's currently going on and what's been going on for years and, you know, what are people's experiences with that, particularly the professionals who are often overlooked in these debates. Lots of people talk to the parents, and, of course, that's a really important um really important perspective to get but actually the professionals who are such a big part of this yeah. can often be quite overlooked yeah so and I feel like I feel like the book does that I feel the book demonstrates the professionals points of views and opinions and experiences around this but also just how I guess easily and uncritically this technology can be routinized in the clinic or, or at least I hope it does yeah well maybe for some of our listeners could you maybe inform them of this screening practice and I mean you sort of touched about touched upon how this interplay between all these relevant actors from healthcare professionals to doctors um your book talked about midwives um yeah so could you maybe talk a little bit about about that and maybe in general how what your experience was like in um Springtown and Framarsh yeah sure that's Mm -hmm. uh, that's absolutely fine so the practice of screening and testing really does vary from place to place and that's just within the UK and I'm sure in the US it's it's very different as well but actually I can tell you what happened in the hospitals I observed and from what I've read in the literatures actually I suppose in the US as well mm-hmm. um, there's not too much discrepancy in terms of the practice itself so prenatal right. um, screening for Down syndrome involves uh, administering a test to determine exactly how likely it is that a baby or fetus um, has Down syndrome or another genetic condition. This is sometimes what's lost in uh, in debates around this stuff. Prenatal screening for Down syndrome just doesn't cover that condition. It also covers conditions like Edwards syndrome or Patau syndrome, mm-hmm. um, which are two trisomic conditions, which, um, again, sometimes get forgotten about in these debates, but my study was purely looking at um, Down syndrome specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, but in just in terms of what happens in the hospitals, uh, that I observed in Framarsh, which was an NHS institution, a woman would be offered prenatal screening for a range of different conditions, uh, such as Down syndrome, but also diseases. And I talk in the book about 
the, the effects and the impact of classifying genetic condition alongside what we know as illnesses or diseases yeah. and what does for our understandings of disability. But anyway, this happens around 10 weeks in the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. If the woman uh, declines it, she goes forward without any further testing, no problem. If the woman accepts it, she returns to the clinic around 16 weeks, so around six weeks later, for a consultation to have a longer conversation and uh, determine whether she wants to screen or not. Right. This is the consultation that I mostly talk about in the book right. and that I detail. So if the conversation then takes place and she decides that she does want to go ahead and have this screen after she's been given all the information, uh, she has a blood taken from her arm, which is then sent for analysis. The result of this is what they call a risk factor. Mm-hmm. So that is when, or a chance factor, mm-hmm. that is when the woman is, or rather the fetus is determined to be at what they call a higher risk or a higher chance or at a lower risk or a lower chance of having people or having a child rather yeah. with Down syndrome. Now, many people have suggested moving away from the word risk mm-hmm. because it has connotations of negativity, Definitely. particularly in how we think about disability and stuff. But as I talk about in the book, actually, the term risk is the one that's used quite a lot. So I'll probably use them a little bit interchangeably here. Right. So what happens is there's a, that cutoff of a higher risk or higher chance or lower risk and lower chance is a result of one in 150. So say that uh, you have a risk of one in 200. Mm-hmm. So one in 200 chance of having a child with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. You would be categorized as lower risk, which would mean that you wouldn't be offered any further testing. Right. If you were having a higher chance, mm-hmm. say a result of one in 10, then you would be offered diagnostic testing. Right. Um, it takes between about one and two weeks to get a result. Um, and yes, again, if you have a higher chance result, the partner and the, or rather, sorry, the mother and her partner, if there is a partner there, are invited back to the clinic to talk about the possibility of having a diagnostic test, which would confirm or refute a suspected diagnosis. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. So this, um, this test, which is called an amniocentesis, or CVS or chorionic villa sampling right. is an option straight away because it actually has a risk of miscarriage mm-hmm. among some other complications. It's one that most people know about, which is when a needle is um, inserted into the abdomen of a woman. So some women and their partners don't like that idea mm-hmm. and actually, it, you know, it won't matter to them whether the child has a disability. So they choose not to have it mm-hmm. and no further tests are offered, but some do. Right. And if they do accept it, they undergo this medical procedure and they'll receive their results for Down syndrome and related conditions within a period of about two to three days. Right. And actually for all of the genetic conditions tested for, it's within about two weeks. Mm-hmm. That's what happens in the NHS hospital. And the process is essentially the same for Springtown, which is uh, a privately funded prenatal clinic where I did my research as well. So it's essentially the same there, except that actually it involves an ultrasound scan along with the blood test. So this is usually done around 12 to 14 weeks into a pregnancy. And the reason why they do the ultrasound is that it increases the accuracy slightly right. of the test. Right. Uh, and I think sometimes they, cause I got really confused about this when I started out thinking about this was that distinction between screening and testing. Yeah. And actually the way that it's talked about sometimes on TV and online is really not helpful because those distinctions aren't made. And so for me, I think it is quite useful to kind of think about 
or just spell out exactly what those differences are. So screening, just to kind of put it very simply, I guess, is when you get the chance factor of having um, a child with a particular genetic condition, whereas a diagnostic test um, will involve giving expecting parents a diagnostic category that is, as they say, 100% accurate. Oh, interesting. Uh, I didn't know that myself. Yeah, so again, it's just that there's a lot of stages within this process in terms of the screening and the testing. Um, so it's just, uh, yeah, that language can sometimes be a bit confusing. But totally. In terms, yeah, so in terms of the people involved, mm-hmm. it, will, it will vary from uh, hospital to hospital, even within the country um, that the study's taken, you know, taken place in. Um, according to a lot of the literature where we, we've looked at it, but in terms of where I did mine, um, Down syndrome screening consultations were carried out exclusively by midwives and sonographers, whereas in places such as France, a lot of the literature suggests that actually it's doctors mm-hmm. who deliver this information. So in my book, I actually talk about this in terms of what I call downgrading, which is how doctors were able to what I call relegate screening down the clinical hierarchy because... Down syndrome screening was seen as this routine and easy test uh, to do. Mm-hmm. And so professionals were able, or rather the doctors were able to kind of you know, get rid of the responsibility for it. And so the responsibility for its delivery was seen as being allocated to midwives and sonographers. And the doctors only really become part of this dialogue once uh, a diagnostic test is discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, once it's carried out. So it's really the midwives and stenographers who would do a lot of this work, which, you know, they, they do fantastic work and they work incredibly hard, but it does introduce a few problems. And one of which I talk about in the book is about understandings around Down syndrome. So a lot of the midwives and stenographers say they've been taught a lot around the screening right. uh, for the condition, but very little about disability itself. And so they don't feel confident in terms of talking about disability with expectant parents when they come into the clinic. So that's just one effect of that relegation taking place. So, I mean, I think you kind of talked about this a little bit with like the uh, sort of how like the screening process itself works. Um, But Mm -hmm. I I think like some of the main conceptual drivers of your book have been predominantly about care and choice and how intricately intertwined these two ideas are or these two concepts really are. Um, and I think there's like a section in your book that's like entitled like opening a can of worms. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I was wondering if you could speak on that. Yeah, of course. Uh, that phrase opening a can of worms was used by some of the midwives and sonographers to flesh out some of their major concerns that they had with Down syndrome screening. This was actually something I hadn't expected before I went into the clinic, which was that a lot of the professionals there had some really serious, grave concerns and anxieties about Down syndrome screening. Uh, Some of them were very unhappy about being responsible for doing it. Mm -hmm. And this really included a few different things, such as concerns over its accuracy, but it was also its capacity, again, to use that phrase, to open a can of worms, so to create even more problems than before. So there are a few tensions here, actually. So the professionals had these worries about screening, but they felt that they couldn't convey this to expectant parents because doing so would be seen as bad practice. As you touched upon, when we have these conversations around prenatal screening, the 
the rhetoric of choice comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea of having informed choice and having non-directive care. That's the, that's the rhetoric that's used quite a lot over here. Right. And the professionals believe that if they were to convey their own worries and their own anxieties around prenatal screening, it would potentially be seen as swaying the decisions of expectant parents. So right. that would be seen as basically doing bad care. Mm-hmm. So they, they identified how they aligned with that idea of informed choice and non-directed care. So what it, mean, what it meant to care well for the expectant parents during consultations was essentially bestowing them with loads of information. And I mean a lot. Mm-hmm. of information and quite complex medical inf- uh, details as well. Yeah. And essentially leave the decision up to the expectant parents. So the care really here was seen as offering choice. So the satisfaction of a professional's care obligation was essentially not taking responsibility for it themselves, not taking responsibility for decision making. So they would they would act, but they wouldn't act decisively. So they would give them the information, but they would say, okay, well, now this is your call. We've given you everything that you need. Right. Now, that might seem like a, a good move in terms of allocating responsibility to parents and enabling them to be uh, choice makers, as they call it sometimes. But what happened with that was they often, I wouldn't want to say criticized, but they often felt that expectant parents didn't really they weren't really attuned to the seriousness of Down syndrome screening and they almost accept, accepted it unwittingly mm-hmm. or rather uncritically, mm-hmm. uncritically rather. So they would um, just say things like, oh, yeah, go on, I'll have the test, but not really thinking about why that is the case, as in because you're offering it, then surely it must only be a good thing. So they felt that it was so routinized in prenatal medicine that people don't actually think about whether to have it or not. Right. And they were the accusation. And again, that's maybe a bit of a strong word, but maybe the thought actually that they had was that expecting parents were regularly submitting to having the procedure without really thinking about it because they have so much to think about yeah. during uh, during the pregnancy. So this meant that screening was consented to a uh, consented to really as an instance of conformity rather than any active decision making process. And loads of literatures within sociology, anthropology, and so on have talked about this. Abby Lippman talked about it, um, you know, over over 20, 25 years ago, and it's it's still taking place now. So what I show in the book really is that the effect of the professionals almost disposal of that responsibility in their their curbing of their own personal concerns and ambiguities around the screening, you know, not telling this to parents meant that it actually creates conditions under which Down syndrome screening is seen once more not as an opt-out medical procedure. So I think the book actually problematizes this notion of choice. You know, we can ask really, is this what choice is, um, is, you know, is that really what's going on here? Um, But it's seen really, as I argue throughout the book, again, not maybe as an opt-out medical procedure, but maybe more as that expected pit stop on a pregnancy journey. Yeah, like there's almost not really a space necessarily to critically think about it um, as parents. So I think that also you sort of talk talk a lot about the expectation for having, like while a a parent is expecting a child that it's like um, 
I think, it, did you title it something like a perfect um, perfection or like ex, ex, expecting perfection? Um, so I thought that was particularly interesting. And if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, of course. So, uh, yeah, I think the chapter title uh, was Expectant Parents Expecting Perfection. Right. Something along that. So this was the idea that there was almost an expectation or anticipation around perfection. And what we mean by perfection within this context often translates to having what parents would often call like a normal pregnancy or having a normal child. And really that was never explicitly defined within prenatal then it was really, in terms of my understanding of it, essentially an absence of disability. Yeah. That's kind of what normality amounted to. Mm-hmm. So um, what, I, what I suggest in the book was that we have these ideas around normality and perfection, which are culturally contingent. So it really depends on where you go uh, and where you are with this prenatal screening and what might be seen as a so-called perfect or normal pregnancy or perfect or normal child is really just depends on the culture in which you grow up and now in a UK context that seemed to be again that absence of disability and what uh, what seemed to happen in terms of Down syndrome screening was that it was seen as almost the expected and responsible action for parents particularly those as what they call uh, at an advanced maternal age this mm-hmm. translates to mothers who are aged 35 or over mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff in the literature around this about how, you know, how these mothers are configured. You know, they're seen as not engaging in what might be seen as like, you know, risk avoidance could be considered as a failure of the self and, you know, not looking after yourself, being irresponsible. So it seems that responsible future parenting and particularly motherhood, this particularly concerns women and feminist academics have written about this quite a lot which implies that the acquisition of all medical information about the health of the fetus um, is seen as almost an inherent good. Yeah. And that admitting yourself to being surveyed in biomedicine um, will almost guarantee uh, a normal baby. So because women uh, specifically tend to be held responsible for childcare and family welfare, yeah, and uh, and because the idea of normal and perfection holds such considerable power I think in many societies and particularly in the UK these anxieties regarding what might happen during a pregnancy actually run really deep so this might explain why some expectant mothers uh, feel like they're wholly responsible for ensuring a perfect outcome and why they might take screening because of that as in in order to be a responsible parent, I have to take this medical test. And then this is why I think also that actually they can experience feelings of culpability and blame if this expectation isn't realized. So there's been a lot of research with parents who have children with disabilities and how at the moment of diagnosis, there was a sense of guilt or um, blame for not having produced the so-called perfect child. Right. I mean, sorry, go on. Oh, yeah. No, I was just going to say, I mean, this, I almost um, feel like I have to ask, you know, if you, what sort of challenges you faced in almost like um, observing all of this, especially in the medical 
consultations for screenings and, and a lot of your book is um, interviews um, with like different healthcare professionals. So I was wondering what kind of challenges you faced on such a, um, a very, I think I would imagine as a woman, like a very difficult topic. Yeah, yeah, of course. Actually, um, for the most part, my field work went ahead really quite unproblematically. And mm-hmm. my, my um, which was, you know, a really good thing. And of course, there were challenges, yeah. which I'm happy to talk about here. But my uh, my main concern going into do this research was um, being male and actually going in as a male researcher in a setting that was largely populated by women, you know, obviously in terms of uh, the patients walking through the door, but also the professionals who were um, dealing with all this stuff. So I was thinking, how would they deal with um, my presence there as someone, again, not just who was male, but who was uh, a sociologist right. as opposed to a medical professional. Um, but actually, there was ve- there were very few problems there, and uh, the professionals were brilliant throughout my whole stay. They were really welcoming, right. uh, accommodating, couldn't do enough for me. Um, we had a good, we had some good fun there as well throughout my year. Yeah. Um, based in both settings, actually. So uh, I thought my gender would be the biggest hurdle to get right. over, but um, or even being a sociologist, but I, actually it wasn't for me. Yeah. It was just the fieldwork process itself. It was um, it was really draining yeah. physically and emotionally, and I don't think that's talked about a lot, particularly by male researchers, in terms of that the emotional toll of doing some of this stuff. Oh, yeah. And I found it really hard, for instance, when expecting parents were told that there was a so-called problem in inverted commas with their pregnancy, which often translated to, again, a diagnosis of fetal abnormality. Now, of course, the, the decision that, or the enormity of the decisions they have to make can't be um, compared to my own experience. Like that, Their experience was um, devastating for them, and the professionals found it so difficult to convey that. So of course, they don't want to make the comparisons, but um, just from my own personal perspective, um, it was quite overwhelming. It was difficult to process, and sometimes you feel like you've stumbled into quite personal moments. So actually, at those times, I just, you know, I left the scene. I just exited the room, so I didn't feel like my presence was particularly helpful or appropriate at that time. But um, yeah, there were there were several occasions where doing the research provoked these quite difficult and intense moments. Um, the one that I talked about a little bit um, in some work that I've done is one case which stands out where I observed a, a feticide, which mm. is the act of causing fetal death through um, um, you know, a medical procedure. Right. Uh, and this consultation didn't just affect me, but it affected a lot of the professionals who were working, who I thought, you know, would be used to this work and as difficult as that um, particular procedure would have been. Um, I hadn't really anticipated just how much emotional burden a lot of the professionals took on. I think it really hit it home for me then, because right. even for days after the procedure, everyone was still very um, upset and the mood was low and it was... Uh, you know, I found just, again, from a personal perspective, it, it was just tough work yeah. on occasions. And not just the emotional side of things, but just um, just actually doing the research. We, as a um, 
as a you know a PhD student, I didn't really get this in terms of reading around the literature, just how um, just the all of the emotions that come with doing field work. Totally. So for me, for me, I felt exhausted. I felt sometimes reluctant to do um, do my research. You know, I didn't want to be there because not because of you know anything the professionals did whatsoever, but it was just you know lots of different reasons like having doubt about my project and just feelings of incompetence of you know what am I doing here um do I belong here you know I, ideas of imposter dumb yeah uh, being out of place and just a little bit of shyness at times as well I, I'm quite a confident person I'd like to think but actually there were times where you go in and there'd be like this element of almost being shy in only certain situations yeah but also just, you know, things like stress, um, confusion, frustration, uh, and not necessarily at the professionals, but just uh, um, sometimes bureaucratic measures in place and totally. you know, wait, waiting. And also one thing that a lot of people don't talk about, my supervisors did warn me about when doing ethnography was um, boredom. Mm. Actually, you can get really bored doing research sometimes. You feel like you're just sitting around for hours. Right. Um but in terms of all the other stuff, it was, you know, sometimes when I did field work, I loved it. And, you know, I really enjoyed it. But other times I I dreaded it and I didn't want to go. Um, and I think I could put it down to maybe some fatigue, some anxiety about, um, you know, beginning the study in the first place. But then actually collecting data, what would happen to my relationships afterwards? Um, what would I do in terms of leaving? What would I do when I release the findings? And once if they don't reflect that favorably on people? What happens if people think I'm my work is incredible and important? Uh, so I think for me there were lots of challenges with doing the work, but actually ones that were unexpected. I expected ones to be around the gender and actually to, you know about doing the research itself and access and relationships, but none of that seemed to be a big hindrance for me. Actually, the other the part that was unexpected that was the biggest challenge was just. Yeah, doing field work myself and just the impact of that on me. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that's something that you you can, you know, you do a lot of reading and you read all this research, but you never actually realize the amount of emotional capacity that it takes to do it, actually. Um, and so yeah. it's, it's, yeah, I think it's, I think it's so great that you're talking about it because I think the amount of work that people have to put in to create books and even to like touch subjects that are um, that are like centered around care and choice are are especially, um, you know, can be especially emotionally draining. So um, I'm really glad that you talked about that. But I'm also really glad that you were able to um, finish everything and write such an amazing book. It's really phenomenal um so i was just kind of wondering what what you hope to inform readers about your book and what they might hope to take away from the book of course um for me i guess what i wanted just i guess a little bit modestly was just that readers come away with maybe a stronger and perhaps even very different understanding of down syndrome screening um but also of how we think about choice in this context and also about how ideas, how ideas of disability are formulated. So, I mean, I talked about this earlier, um, but I think when people talk about prenatal screening, 
how ideas around disability are configured within that space are often um, overlooked. And for me, that was what I hoped would be one big contribution from this book, just to think about how very kind of everyday interactions and practices can shape our own values and the world that we live in and how we think about um, things like disability, but also just how medical technologies can become so routinized and so taken for granted on an everyday level and what what effects that has. And um, I just really hope that readers leave with more questions than answers as well. I don't think right. I've set out the book to say, you know, I'm going to try and solve the problem of this screening, yeah. uh, if, we, if we can call it a problem. But really, for me, I think actually the book throws up a range of social issues, of ethical concerns, some of which are um, not fully dealt with in the book and actually require immediate attention. So I think, or at least I'd like to hope that the book serves as a decent platform to have those conversations, both here in the UK but also in the US and beyond as well. But I guess I, I also just hope that people enjoyed the book and that they um, they took something from it that they didn't know before. And I guess that's, um, yeah, I guess that's the, the smallest thing I'm hoping for. Yeah, I mean, as, um, I, as a person that's read your book, um, I think it was so eye-opening. And I think, I think just like you mentioned before, it really does explore the need to critically think about the dimensions surrounding choice and prenatal responsibility. Um, so um, maybe like, do you have any future directions with this research? Um, I know that you said you're a lecturer now. So what kind of mm -hmm. research are you involved in? Are there any next steps with this research in particular? Or do you have any future plan? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, so the next step is to write up a research grant proposal. Mm -hmm. to carry out a qualitative study on non-invasive prenatal testing. So this is known as NIPT, mm -hmm. which is a new prenatal test which has been advertised as being much more accurate, much quicker, and screening for many more conditions than the current test for Down syndrome screening. So for me, this almost completely changes everything. And the way that it's talked about in the media, it almost see, it's almost seen as almost like a familiar step uh, into, you know, new medical technologies. But for me, it just feels like, I don't know, this is a really big leap into something which is completely new and completely, the phrase we use in the case, um, moves the goalposts. Mm -hmm. I think it changes everything. Um, so I know that you've got it over in the U.S. as well. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea is to do some research uh, here in the UK on it, because I know people over there are working on it, which is great. But um, trying to do it in the UK and maybe some other areas in, in Europe as well, because it's being planned to be rolled out in the NHS in 2018. So it's available privately, so people can pay for it now. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's going to be available free of charge on the NHS uh, in 2018, or at least that's a plan. So I think the introduction of NIPT in the UK, but also, again, in the US and elsewhere, will actually amplify a lot of the things I've talked about in this book. And mm -hmm. in my view, I'm probably not alone here, uh, I think it's really important that we, you know, capitalize on this a little bit and actually fully explore what this technology is doing and how it's implemented in practice and how it 
changes things, if it does at all. Um, and I think we have to do that quickly. Um, so that's really the next step in terms of my research and my future plans. Other than that, um, I'm trying to have a bit of a quieter summer because last summer was in, was uh, writing up this book. Right. So uh, this summer we'll just be catching up on all the stuff I didn't get a chance to do during this very busy last semester and um, also working on my uh, new house. Oh, um, great. <laughs> my partner, Ellie. So we're, uh, yeah, so that's my summer plans. But beyond that, yeah, trying to get another grand proposal with some colleagues here in the UK, uh, Heather Strange, uh, based here in Cardiff, uh, as well as Angus Clark here in Cardiff, Joanna Latimer, based at the University of York, and perhaps a few other people. We're still uh, working out the finer details, but that's the plan. And, um, yeah, I really hope we're able to do something with it. Well, great. Well, we wish you the best of luck, and um, I'm sure that our listeners will be very excited for whatever you may have in store. Um, and good luck with your research grant proposal. And, of course, relaxing is so important. So, um, yeah, um, wishing you the best. And hopefully maybe the next time you have another book out, um, you'll be on our show again. But thanks so much for your time. Uh, thank you. No, I'd love to come back. And, uh, yeah, no, thanks for taking the time to read it and for your um, for your questions. And, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, yeah, just thank you enjoyed it so thanks um, so much yeah thanks everybody take care